stop bullying and shouting at the lower orders? Never! There's only one way to win a campaign. Shout, shout and shout again! This is Shot and Shield. Shield. Uh, Listening in Lake Forest, California, Windsor, Connecticut and Perth. Western Australia, this is the Shot and Shield Supercast, a podcast dedicated to 19th century wargaming and history, a program meant to be heard while you're painting your miniatures and building your terrain. I am your host, the Grand Duke Scott from the Duchy of Florida, and in this episode, I have a very special movie review for you. As promised, I take a look at an episode from the TV series Sharp, specifically the 1993 classic episode Sharp's Eagle. Captain Leroy, tell Sharp to get a move on. Sorry about this, Sharp. It's a Henry's compliment. And you're not to dawdle in the rear. All right, lads. If you can't dawdle in the rear, we may as well dawdle in the front. Took the words out of my mouth, sir. What the blazes? Quick time, sir. The rifle regiment has only two marches. Quick time and dawdle. I have another product review for you. I'm looking at the Greek War of Independence line from Steve Barber Models. I have a gaming thing for you today. Gaming the wars in South America. More specifically, the Pacific War of 1879 to 1884 and the War of the Triple Alliance, 1864 to 1870. To end the show, I'll be presenting you with a double-fisted dose of ACW action. I uncover two episodes from CBS's You Are There, the first being Gettysburg and the second being The Monitor and The Merrimack. Now, I have said that I will let you know when the podcast is receiving some payment for advertising, and this is it. Shot and Shield is brought to you by Dr. Harold's Hobby Supplies, a one-stop shop for tools, paint, glue, brushes, wargaming bases, display stands, model trees, static grass, dice, dice trays, and terrain materials, and even some miniatures. New items added every week. Dr. Harold's is a new dropship site and growing. See the growth at drherald.myshopify.com. That's drherald.myshopify.com. Dr. Harold's Hobby Supplies, a proud sponsor of Shot and Shield. And with that said, you know what? Let's hit some emails. Germany calling, London calling, Moscow calling, Washington, D.C. calling, Peking calling, Sydney calling. Message for you, sir. It's time to answer some emails from all around the world. Now, you too can email me at uh, shotandshield at gmail.com if you have a question or retort or critique or, or if you just want to make a suggestion, please email me and I'll answer you either directly or I'll share it on the show. Either way, we're going to be talking, yo. Uh, First uh, email here comes from Kyle in Fredericksburg. And Kyle writes, I've been using Milliput for a long time when I can't easily get green stuff. I read that you have a problem with Milliput and prefer liquid weld. My first question is, why do you hate Milliput? And my second question is, what the... (laughs) <laughs> is liquid weld. Keep up the great work. Okay, Kyle, so here's the deal. So uh, I've been working uh, with Meliput uh, lately. And so here's my issue. Maybe this is maybe this is my fault. Maybe I, I'm blaming Meliput and I should just blame myself. But every time I use Meliput, it seems like it's, it, it's too dry. Like it's not wet enough. 
And so when I go to mold, whatever I'm molding, whatever I'm, I'm trying to make a hat or I'm trying to make a beard or I'm trying to make a blanket or something like that. I, I don't do a lot of sculpting, but every time I go to use it, it seems to crack. It seems to, it doesn't seem to shape very well. So it just, it's great for filling holes, but when you're actually trying to make something or add something to the figures that you have, you know, like I try to add some hats. Well, so I add some hats, a big fluffy hats, and it just seems to crumble. Then you have to wait forever for it to dry. And then when it does dry, it's like, okay, maybe it's a little more crumbly. And I got to get all the crumbles off. So it's just, just kind of awkward to work with for me. Uh, if you're having great luck with it, God bless you. Good for you. Um, for me, I just, you know, liquid weld. <laughs> this is going to sound funny. And I found this at the hardware store. It was just a little bottle of weld epoxy. And it, it, it's really meant to... If you have like a busted pipe and you need to fill the hole so the pipe doesn't squirt water everywhere, you take this stuff, it's epoxy, you mix it up, boom, 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 you put it on there, and in like 15 minutes, it's dry. And it's like metal. So it's, it's I think it's like real metal. I started using liquid weld on some of my miniatures when I could do whatever I needed to do fast. So if I needed to make a hat, I'd take a little, make the hat do whatever I needed to do, and within 15 minutes, it was dry and ready to, ready to spray. I mean, it should sit there for like 24 hours, but if you really, if it really needs to, if you're really trying to get something done, uh, I always found Liquid Weld uh, works pretty good. And I found that at a hardware store. I found it at uh, discount stores for, you know, $2.99, you know, $2.99. Uh, if you get it like at uh, the big box stores, that's going to cost you like 20 bucks because, you know, everybody's really expensive, but you could find it for... Uh, for cheap. And it usually it works pretty good. It at least works pretty good for me. Let's see another email here. It says from Wendell listening on Spotify, no location listed. So he didn't tell me where he's listening from, what state or city or country or whatever, but he's listening on Spotify. Thank you very much, Wendell. And it's just one question. Where do you get your Cossacks? It was Outpost War Game Service, but the site is down and I know my U.S. Uh, go-to, if the, the place I go to in the United States is uh, Badger out of Wisconsin. But they're probably running out because I don't see Outpost uh, Wargaming Services making anything new or, or fulfilling orders. I mean, their, their website's gone, so I'm not sure. I had planned to put together a whole Cossack army for a, uh, a Circassian game. I'm just probably going to have to find a new company. You know, probably Assault Group. Uh, they got some really, really nice Cossacks. They got some sweet Cossacks going on. I don't know now. Before, like I said, before, Outpost Wargaming Service, no problem. Done. Boom. Uh, good stuff. But uh, I don't know what's going on there. That's too bad. Uh, good stuff. If anybody knows, uh, send me an email, update me. Because uh, if, if it's just a, a pause, then that's cool. Then I'll just uh, hold back. But if not, then I'll probably have to find a new uh, Cossack supplier. <laughs> makes it sound like I'm <laughs> like I'm breaking bad over here. Uh, let's see another question here. This is from Red Rum listening in Singapore on the Ghana app. Thank you for giving me all three. Your name, where you're listening from, and what uh, application you're using to listen to the program on. Thank you very much. And uh, Red Rum, he writes or she writes it is Red Rum writes Duke. You have not had many guests on this year. What's up? I know. I know. I know. 
it's all about timing. I don't, I just don't have as much time as I did before. And I'm on call 24 seven with my new job, my day job, right? So it's trying to pin down a solid date to record guests is very tough. So, cause I could go ahead and say, Hey, I have, uh, I actually have uh, several uh, guests that uh, I've already communicated with through Hellion uh, to bring on, bring them on to talk about some of their books and, and some of the info that they have. Um, a couple of gaming uh, folks that come on. I, I want to be able to, but if I say, hey, let's do this next Tuesday, I could get all geared up and then ring, I got to go in. I got to go into work. So it's, and I don't want to, I think it's rude for a host of a podcast or a radio show or anything or a TV show to bump guests or re reschedule guests. I've had to do it in the past, and let me tell you, I felt horrible, and it's kind of rude. Uh, sometimes you just can't help it, but uh, I, you know, for when it can be prevented. So when I know that I have a certain day off and I'm not going to get called in, then that's when I'll schedule uh, those interviews if I can. But that's what's going on. That's what's going on. It's frustrating. I know it's frustrating for me as well. So we're doing that. We're frustrated together. Okay. Now I'm going to go back to the Far East and an email from Farat in Delhi, also listening on the Ghana app. I had to put, I will tell you this, I had to put this in the translator and adjust some of the wording, but I think I was able to determine what Farat was saying, and hopefully I'm pronouncing your, pronouncing your name correctly, so if, I, if, I, if I'm not, I, I apologize. But what I was able to determine through the translator is um, Farat uh, says, I saw the pictures of your camel guns, and I want to do something similar for my imagination armies. Can you walk me through the process step by step? I'm not a good scratch builder, and I'm not a good sculptor. I, I have to tell you, I, uh, when I, I got this, I also did the translation back into Hindi. And so, <laughs> if you don't mind, I'm going to try it. I'm going to try it, okay? Here we go. So for Rot, this is what I got for you, okay? Apni pasand ke unt kan dehudhien palel kubad mine ek ched drill karen or ek pin kogand den furpin par banduk kan gond den our kubad kohar rang ke samansen dak den, which... I think uh, uh, in the in the translator it says, you find the camel you like, drill the hole in the first hump, glue the pin in, then glue the gun on the pin and cover the hump up with green stuff. So if I mutilated the Hindi language, I apologize, but I wanted to give it a shot uh, out of respect for Farat for sending the uh, for sending me the email. That is, it was really an awesome email, and it took me about fifteen minutes to try to figure out how to get the translator working. So uh, hopefully that's exactly what I said in uh, Hindi. So, but for those of you not in Hindi, here's, here's the way, here's the way it happened. Okay. When you are doing any sort of scratch build, you really have to find the pieces all at once before you start going into the scratch build. So that's the first. So first off, what I did is I found, I found the camel I liked. Uh, I used the Tiger Miniature 28 millimeter camels uh, in the, like the, the laying down position. I did this in metal because I wanted some weight on the table, if you understand what I'm saying. However, you can use plastic or 3D print. I have some 3D print ones that I'll be uh, putting together for uh, my Persians to kind of beef up that. 
And those might work better for you because they're easier to work with rather than metals. Now, the camels have to be laying down. I mean, they, well, they don't have to be laying down, but the, you know, for it to really have effect, it should be laying down. Next, you need to find something that looks like a cannonet, a falconet, a jingle, or a one-pounder, and a housing. I used a rifle for a 40-millimeter figure and a locking pin uh, that I picked up at the hardware store. It is really, really inexpensive. It's not a big deal. Then I drilled a hole in the first hump of the camel using the smallest drill bit I had, filled it with glue, put the pin in the hole and let it dry. Then I glued the gun into the pin, used a little of the milliput to cover up the hump. And I can't sculpt either, so the best thing I could do is try to make it look like a sheepskin blanket. And then once I uh, start the paint, then I'll paint it that way. I did take two members of a gun crew from another kit, and it's voila, camel gun. Now, I made this uh, round for uh, my Harati Field Force. I still need two more for my Persian Field Force. Like I said earlier, I, I'm going to be taking a couple of uh, 3D print jobs I have and doing that with it. Uh, and then I'll probably do another set of three for a Kievan Field Force I have. And then that'll be it. Just to note, someone commented. <sighs> it was kind of frustrating when I saw the comment. I'm sorry, I was itching. Uh, commented that the Zambarok or the Camel Gun wasn't very effective in combat. And I got to say, I beg to differ. I beg to differ, because the Zambarok uh, is meant to be used in mass. So having a battery of three on the skirmish table, I think it's good. Uh, the destructive power is low, but the effect on morale is the key piece, much like the morale busting of the early rockets. You know, I mean, you see a smoke trail and you hear whistling, uh, and for troops at that time who didn't know what that was, that could be terrifying. So imagine you're a British trooper, right? And what do you know? You know rolling hills of green, trains, pubs, Sherlock Holmes, Shepherd's Pie, you know, English stuff. And now you're in a hot, desolate, rocky desert with a sergeant major yelling at you while you see 50 weird-looking two-humped horses with a gun mounted on each firing at you. I mean, that's the vision that you have, right? Dude, you're scared. That's not good. So to say that a camel gun wasn't very effective in combat uh-uh, sorry. No, the Persians, the Haradis, the Kievans, uh, the Hindi, uh, these troopers use these very effectively. And in some cases, you know, I've read the, the Persian army used them 50, 60, 70 at a time. And so when you have all that coming at you, that's going to make a, that's, that's a, that's a big deal. So that it wasn't very effective. I'm sorry. I, I really beg to differ. Not good, right? Anyway, I, I just want to get that off my chest. So thank you. Uh, that's it for this episode's dispatches. Remember, you can email me at shotandshield at gmail.com. If you have any questions or retort a critique, or if you want to make a suggestion, please email me, and I'll either answer you directly or share it on the show. Still ahead, I'll be taking a look at the Greek War of Independence line from Steve Barber Models. Next on Shot and Shield. Hey, what the blazes is this? A podcast dedicated to colonial and 19th century wargaming. All right, Marines. This is Shot and Shield. The Shot and Shield YouTube channel is one of the places you can hear the podcast, but also where you can stay caught up on your favorite 19th century style movies, like the first 14 episodes of the masterpiece theater classic, Sharp. 
as well as movies I've reviewed on a podcast in a special Shot and Shield Presents playlist. You can also see clips of battles played out from Hollywood and documentaries as well. Go to YouTube, search out Shot and Shield, and subscribe today. This is Shot and Shield. You don't think I too dream of peace? You don't think I too yearn to end this damn dirty job we call soldiering? Frankly, no. Thank you for continuing to listen to Shot and Shield, the Supercast. I would like to ask you to uh, please feel free to share this show uh, to anyone who you think could get something out of it. And just know that I appreciate you for listening to Shot and Shield. So I had uh, this email a while ago. Hold on for a second here. Asking me to do something with the Greek War of Independence. And I thought I had, but uh, when I went back and took a look at some of the... uh, earlier episodes, I realized I really hadn't, at least not in a in a full-throated way. Um, so I have a couple of uh, movie clips on the YouTube channel, right? Um, but I don't recall ever talking about figures or, or really getting into the Greek War of Independence. Uh, so what I'd like to do right now is, uh, I th- because I thought it would be a good time to take a look at the Greek War of Independence line from Steve Barber Models. Now, right out of the box, I will tell you that I'm a fanboy of uh, Steve Barber. He's a great sculptor, and his figs are normally right on the money. I have uh, thought about engaging him on some commission work uh, to put together a set of uh, Turkmen's for me. But regardless, uh, the stuff that uh, I'm going to be talking about here, the Greek War of Independence line, it's on his uh, site. It's stevebarbermodels.com. So the Greek War of Independence line, the collection itself, contains 25 sets. And as I've said, you know, all of them are well-sculpted, well-researched. Let me start at the top. Greek and Albanian irregulars, they're advancing. You got the Greek and Albanian regulars, uh, irregulars firing, charging. Those those three sets right there, just pristine. Really, really nice. And you know what? can I tell you something? If you're going to have a miniature site, you're going to have a, a model site, you're going to be doing these just a from me as a consumer to you as uh, someone who's going to be putting these up online, paint them, paint them, make them look good. There's too many sites where I would go and I'd look at the page and I'd see, well, you don't have a picture or you have just a picture of it in its glossy metal face. And you look at it and you think to yourself, wow, you know, I'd really like to get that set of figures, but you know what? I just... I can't take the chance. I'm not gonna, I'm gonna spend eight bucks, nine bucks, 20 bucks, 40 bucks sometimes on a bunch of figures that I really don't know if they're that good because there's no example of what they look like painted or even primed. Because if you even prime them and you put them up there, I'm gonna look at them and say, hey, look, okay, you know what? I can see where I could do some color here and there and there, blah, 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 right? And if you're wondering why your site isn't getting much more traction, <laughs> Maybe it's because none of the stuff you have on there is painted. I'm just saying, you know, I mean, be a good business person too, right? You're a great sculptor and you have a great idea for miniatures. Be a good business person too. It doesn't take a lot, right? Anyway, I'm just saying. Steve Barber is definitely, definitely on on target because the paint jobs and the pictures on his site for everything that he's done is perfect. Done. 
amazing. The Greek uh, War of Independence line here, um, just some really, really nice figures. The Greek regulars in traditional dress, the Greek regulars in the, 19, or the 1825 later uniforms are nice. Uh, Greek Islanders with the European muskets. Now we get into the the Turkish uh, that he has on here, and I got to tell you, uh, last last episode I did a review of the Ottomans by Perry's. Really, and they had really good sets, as I said, and I stand by what I said then. I will tell you, if I decide to put together an Ottoman force, I'm probably going to go Steve Barber here because let me tell you, the Egyptians regular marching and advancing, uh, the levy, the Turkish levies charging and advancing, uh, really, really nice, really nice. The Ottoman Albanians are really nice. Uh, the Ottoman regulars advancing, <laughs> just sweet, sweet looking figures. Provincial infantry is, looks really good. Can I tell you, here's another thing I like. And I like this on a lot of sets, but specifically on Steve Barber here. The sculpts are detailed, but not so much that you're spending your whole day painting one guy. For instance, the, I'll just pick one set here, the Ottoman regulars advancing. Really nice figures, painted really well. If you look at the detail, the detail's there, but the detail's basic. And that's good, because if I'm painting, I don't want to sit there and have to do four colors for a sword, especially if I'm trying to put together a whole field force. Now, he does have some other figures that are really, really detailed, like the Albanian uh, chieftain has this great wrap around his head and the furs that he's wearing and the gun has great detail. Uh, even his leggings have fantastic detail, but that's one figure. And if I'm going to do like one like leader figure, yeah, give me some detail on that. But you're going to give me detail, so much detail that's going to take me forever. Probably not going to purchase it. I'm probably not. I want great, I want a great looking setup and I want a great looking line, but I also don't want to spend all my time painting. I like painting. I love it, but I don't want to spend all my time painting. I got to get game sometime, right? Another company, I should say another guy that does this really good is Bob Merch uh, with Pulp Figures. They're fun to paint. And if you, if you're there, you got a figures that are fun to paint, you're, you're in, right? And the Steve Barber models here just are solid, just solid. Um, I ha I do have one small set of, actually, <laughs> I have one small set of the ACW he has, and they fit perfectly with the, uh, the between the Artisan and the Foundry and the Perry's figures that I have in my collection. So they're, they're on par with the 28 mil, just uh, spot on. So they fit perfectly with that set as well, uh, size-wise. Now, talking about the price, now, I you know, uh, the, the prices that he has on here are in pounds, Sterling, right? Uh, so 795, 7.95, uh, uh, 3.50 uh, are are good prices. Uh, and if you're ordering in America, you just have to you want to watch the you want to watch the fluctuation uh, dollars to pound. You know, as as you order. But uh, you know, they're definitely worth the uh, deal. You get four figures to a set, unless you're buying this the one figure. So if I'm putting together an Ottoman field force, I'm probably going to need, let's see, one, two, three. I'm doing the math right now because, you know, why not? So I probably need nine of the sets of four and then some, and a few characters. So I'm probably looking at about a hundred bucks altogether and some great figures. Won't take me much time to uh, do the paint job on them. 
you know what? I got to tell you, I'm a fan. I'm a fan. Uh, and I would say from what I know about the Greek War of Independence, this line is on the money. A couple of movies I've watched, some books I've read, and some, some articles I've read. Um, Steve Barber has done his research very, very well. And they're they're on the money now. You know what helps me to say that because all the pictures are painted and they're painted boom historical. So for your, you folks out there who just love the historical stuff, all all historical all the time, this is good stuff as well. Um, I will say that the only thing that uh, I think is lacking is uh, the cavalry and a gun emplacement or gun uh, gun crew. So I'm going to say that's the only thing that really lacks is uh, those two. Is uh, you know because you're going to need some cavalry and you're going to need a gun crew. So that's but other just infantry wise, uh, you're set. Uh, also, I want to say that uh, that if I ever do uh, this conflict, um, infantry wise, these are the figs I'm going to be using for sure. But in full transparency, I don't know, Steve. I've never talked to Steve. I'm not being paid for this endorsement. It's just good stuff. And that's that's what I'm seeing. All right, with that said, still ahead, I'll be gaming the wars of South America. But first, I have a special movie review for you next on Shot and Shield. This is Shot and Shield. Howdy ho, tip, tip, um, your uncle. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of... Oh, oh Hello. You just caught me, famous podcaster and influencer Duke Scott, reading in my study. You know what? Since you're here, let me tell you about a great way to connect with uh, our Shot and Shield gaming community. It's through social media. On Facebook, the Shot and Shield Podcast Wargaming Group, where you can find a lot of info about this podcast, but also get wargaming and painting advice from our member experts. You can even learn how to dress like a true 19th century hero from friend of the podcast, Claude Bailey. If you have any questions or comments, you can also hit us up on Twitter at Shot and Shield or email me at shotandshield at gmail.com. When you get to the Facebook group, the Twitter feed, or even the YouTube page, like, subscribe, and if you feel inclined, share what you like. Now, if you'll excuse me, Charles Dickens awaits. Shot and Shield is a production of the Experience 13 Podcast Network. This is Shot and Shield. Oh, damn. Thank you for listening to Shot and Shield that can be heard on any of your favorite podcast apps. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Deezer, Ghana, or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Now, you can also hear this episode on YouTube now as that I am uh, starting to put uh, the audio of the show on the YouTube channel as well. And I'll be taking past episodes and putting them up there um, also. So just uh, you want to keep it, keep a watch eye if you, if you love the YouTube because I've had people comment. I've had people that uh, they only do the YouTube, they don't do the podcast apps. Hence, that's why I'm putting in on the uh, on the YouTube channel also. So there you go. All right, what? done. Let's move on. It's time for a movie review. Now, in this episode of uh, the Shot and Shield Supercast, I'm celebrating the first 14 episodes of the TV series Sharp which you can now see on the Shot and Shield YouTube channel. If you don't know about this series, you are missing out, especially if you're a 19th century fan, like you like 19th century history and you don't know anything about Sharp, you need to you need to buck it up there, buddy. All right? It's an excellent adventure. It stars Sean Bean as Richard Sharp, Dara, I hope I pronounced that name correctly, Dara O'Malley as Sergeant Patrick Harper, David Troughton as the Duke of Wellington, followed by Hugh Fraser from the Poirot shows, 
who took up the role later. Brian Cox in the first two episodes. Now, he was uh, Brian Cox. He was in the HBO series Succession. He plays Major Hogan in the first uh, two episodes of the series. You also have some bad guys. I mean, bad guys. These guys are such good actors, I actually hate them. Like, I actually don't like them. I don't want to watch them in any other series or any other movie because I hate them so much. Because they're such great actors. So the bad guys, you got Michael Cochran. He plays Simerson. Uh, Theodore Atkin. He plays Major Duco. And Pete Postlewaite, who plays uh, Hakeswill or Hawkswill. And, and let me tell you, Pete Postlewaite, I hate him. I hate him. I hate him. I hate him. He's such a great actor. He made me hate his guts. Because the character of Hawkswill is just absolutely probably the worst character, the worst person ever. The actor plays him so well that I hate the actor too now. <laughs> Seriously. So that's mental, right? I shouldn't do that, but I, I can't help it. That's an amazing actor. He should have got uh, should have got awards for that. That's for sure. Uh, the series uh, story follows Richard Sharp's rise in the ranks, his adventures and camaraderie as outside forces try to keep him down and put him in his place. The whole series uh, is fantastic. I love it. But my favorite offering is episode number two, entitled "Sharp's Eagle." where a plot is hatched between Major Hogan and Lord Wellesley, soon to be Duke of Wellington, to manipulate a regimental commander, Simerson, who's a, not just, he, he's not just a pain, but he's a coward too. And they do this by giving him Lieutenant Sharp and having the regiment go on what should be a relatively routine mission to blow up a bridge. Must be a damn good book, Hogan. Shakespeare, sir. Julius Caesar. Mark Anthony. Lend me your ears, eh? These many, them shall die. Their names are pricked. By God, Hogan, you may be sure my name is well pricked by those needles at horse guards. Ah, a general who wins battles and lives to claim the credit will never laugh for enemies in London, sir. And yet? And yet they still behave with their usual folly and weakness. I have officers deserving commissions, notably William Lawford, and what am I sent? Flogged soldiers led by coffeehouse fops and commanded by dangerous buffoons. Sir Henry Simerson on the South Essex. Quite so. I suspect he's been sent to spy on me. Well, why not give them something to send back that will spoil their lordship's supper? Such as what, Hogan? A victory, sir. Small, but solid. Small but solid. The Bridget Bal de la Casa. Oh, something like that. I could spare the South Essex, but Sir Henry Simerson isn't up to it. No. But Richard Sharp is. Richard Sharp? That Sharp do all the dirty work, and Simerson and that obnoxious nephew of his get all the glory. And if all does not go well, Simerson will have to keep quiet about it. And you will have him in your power. And if things go really badly, well, we may lose a gallant officer. Not Sharp. Oh, no. no. Simerson. <laughs> Thank you.
After a bunch of camp intrigue, the regiment arrives at the bridge. Simerson sees a small patrol of French and sends the squad over the bridge to shoo them away. Things don't go so well. The squad, led by Major Lennox, a friend of Sharp, is attacked by hiding cavalry. The cavalry is hidden, and all of a sudden, boom, they're on top of them. Sharp and his men affect a rescue. Simerson blows up the bridge. Lennox is mortally wounded, and the French take the British flag. Not good, but Lennox, in his last dying words, he asks Sharp for a favor. I lost the colors. <coughs> I want an eagle. An imperial eagle, touched by the hand of Bonaparte himself. It's got a brass point. You push it in deep so I can feel it. After this, there's an inquiry because it was such a debacle. And can I tell you, this is one of the best clips in the history of the series. <laughs> At least one of the top, top five for sure. This is great. Lord Wellesley, he's grilling Simerson, right? Continue, Sir Henry. Well, sir. On first sighting the French, I naturally gave the order to advance. That's my style, sir. The South Essex crossed over the bridge and engaged the enemy. Major Lennox panicked. So then I fell back in good order and destroyed the bridge, sir. <clears throat> I have written to Horse Guard, sir, to state that the South Essex acquitted itself most commendably in discharging both your general orders to engage the enemy and your particular order to destroy the bridge, sir. <clears throat> Did any officer distinguish himself? Lieutenant Gibbons led the advance, sir. You may say that he is uh, tied to me by blood. But is it a tie of blood to tie my tongue and rob a brave man of his just reward? No, sir. I recommend Lieutenant Gibbons be gazetted captain, sir. And Lieutenant Sharp? Lieutenant Sharp didn't, sir. He was cut off when we destroyed the bridge. This is a report from Major Hogan, which differs somewhat from your account, Sir Henry. Major Hogan is merely an engineer, sir. Major Hogan's coat buttons up tight over a number of other duties, Sir Henry. Major Hogan reports a number of losses, Sir Henry. He says you first lost your head, and instead of destroying the bridge, you marched over it. He says you then lost your nerve and ran from a small French patrol. He says you lost ten men, a major, and two sergeants. He says you finally lost your sense of honor and destroyed the bridge, cutting off a rescue party led by Lieutenant Sharp. Major Hogan leaves the worst to the last. He says you lost the King's colors. The fault was not mine, sir. Major Lennox must answer. Major Lennox answer with his life, as you should have done if you had any sense of honor. You lost the colors of the King of England. You disgraced us, sir. You shamed us, sir. You will answer. The South Essex is stood down in name. If I wipe the name, I may wipe the shame. I am making you a battalion of detachments you will fetch and carry. The light company put up a fight, so I will let it stand under the command of a new captain. To be commanded by the newly gazetted Captain Gibbons? To be commanded by the newly gazetted Captain Sharp, sir. I have a cousin at Horse Guard, sir, and I have friends at court. A man who loses the king's colors, loses the king's friendship. You have two choices, to hide in England or be a hero in Spain. 
I shall help you to be a hero. We had a skirmish with the French today. Tomorrow we shall have a battle. You will be the first to see a French column, sir. It is not a pretty sight. What you do then, sir, is up to you. Good morning. In the end, there is a major battle, and actually, the Battle of Talavera, where newly gazetted Captain Sharp fights and finally gets the eagle for himself and the dead Major Lennox. Well done, sir, and all done, sir. What a pounding the South Essex gave that column. And the advance of the 48th, Talavera will be the talk of London, sir. Hogan. Sir? Did he? Yes, sir. Pity Lennox ain't here to see it. Damn fine officer, Major Lennox. For those of you in the know, I have skirted major storylines and have just given you the basic premise. But I will say this. If you want to see skirmish and regimental tactics on display, this is the series. Just in this episode alone, you can see the power of an attack in column, the power of firing in line formation, marching at the double, skirmish order, and the power of cavalry on infantry. This series is a must-watch for any 19th century wargamer interested in field tactics. Also, if you were wondering, yes, the uniforms are on point. This whole series is a wargamer's dream. Five, five pith helmets out of five pith helmets. Hands down, hands down. This is great stuff. And you, like I said, if you want to see this, just go to the Shot and Shield YouTube channel and you can see any one of the 14 episodes. And actually there's 16 episodes. There's two episodes that uh, aren't available uh, for me to put on the site, but uh, 14 of them are. And it's up there. Go take a look. Enjoy it. Sit down. Make a day of it. Watch them all. <laughs> Just watch them all. Morning into the evening. Just watch them all. They're, they're about uh, an hour and a half each. All right. So here we go. Uh, coming up, I still have audio archaeological discoveries for you at the end of the show. But next, we're going to game the wars in South America. This is Shot and Shield. And it's going to hurt you a lot more than it will me, I'm happy to say. A podcast dedicated to colonial and 19th century war gaming. Discipline makes the strength of armies. Shot and Shield. Hi, I'm famous podcaster and influencer, Sir Scott. And when I was young, my analyst said that I had an overactive imagination. I mean, he was a financial analyst, but he was still right, okay? Now, as a kid, I would always see my G.I. Joes capture tigers, excavate treasures, or elude dangerous snakes, and I would lose myself in Adventures of Tarzan in Flash Gordon and Conan. Old-time radio always had that magic that could transport you to different times and transport you to different worlds. And now I offer you a podcast filled exclusively with adventures in audio. Search and subscribe to Vintage Radio Adventures, found on most podcast apps. That's Vintage Radio Adventures. This is Shot and Shield. Good luck against those elephants. So 
So Shot and Shield is brought to you by Dr. Harold's Hobby Supplies, a one-stop shop for tools, paint, glue, brushes, wargaming bases, display stands, model trees, static grass, dice, dice trays, and tray materials, and even some miniatures. New items added every week. Dr. Harold's is the new dropship site and growing. See the growth at drherald.myshopify.com. That's drherald.myshopify.com. Dr. Harold's Hobby Supplies is a proud sponsor of Shot and Shield. All right, let's see what we got here. So, look, uh, back in February, Alan Curtis joined me to talk about the war in the Pacific, 1879 to 1883. Alan's book, From the Atacam to the Andes, Battles of the War of the Pacific, 1879 to 1883, from Hellion and Company Publishers. Now, this uh, told the brutal struggle between two sides for control of the wealth of the Atacama and for the retention of Bolivia's coast. And the result was Chile gained the mineral resources of the New North, and Bolivia became the second landlocked country on the continent. I have received a lot of responses from war gamers wondering if I was going to bust out a gaming uh, Chileans or Brazilians, and I have decided that I'm going to review it, but instead of just doing one or the other, I'm going to do the whole continent. That's right, the whole continent. <laughs> I think it's because it, you have to take into the. I think you have to take in the whole continent to do the review. I don't think you could just do one because a it would take like three seconds, and only because this is just an overview. This isn't like a, a, a multi detailed 500-page book or a 72-hour podcast. So we got to do things like, you know, you got to break it down, right? So I decided that I was just going to game the wars of South America, okay? So let's talk a little bit about the history. So like I said, this is just the basic overview of major conflicts that relate to South America in the 19th century. There are uh, four in the 19th century to focus on. The first is what I'm calling the Wars of Simon Bolivar. That's between 1811 and 1826 when Bolivar was attempting to create this sort of uh, United States of Colombia or Gran Colombia in the north of uh, South America. It involved Colombia, Peru, Venezuela. Uh, second, we have the Uruguayan Civil War between 1864 and 65, when the Uruguayan Blanco Party allied Uruguay with Brazil and the Uruguayan Colorado Party allied themselves with uh, the Argentine. And obviously that didn't go well, right? Now, from the ashes of the Uruguayan Civil War rose the third conflict to focus on, which is the War of the Triple Alliance, 64 to 70, which was fought between Paraguay and the Triple Alliance of Argentina, Brazil, and Uruguay. Paraguay lost the conventional war, had, really had no chance. There was too much they were fighting against, but they did have a, a, a pretty solid guerrilla campaign. Now, the last is the War in the Pacific, fought between uh, 79 and 84, where Chile dominated Bolivia and Peru over the resource-rich inner deserts. And I will say this, if you're interested in this, uh, in that conflict, the war in the Pacific, please go back to uh, the February episode 
It was a bonus episode in February and listened to Alan Curtis talk about the battles of the War of the Pacific. It was it's really interesting and his book is spot on. Alan Curtis and the book is from Atacam to the Andes, Battles of the War of the Pacific, 1879 to 1883 from Hellion and Company Publishers. But and like I said, that's back in February. It was a bonus episode. You can find it right here on uh, this channel. De esta profanación, compañeros, mirad aquellos nevados que están contemplando vuestros actos y saludarán mañana vuestros triunfos a cumplir con el sagrado deber que el pueblo boliviano os ha encomendado. Now, where can I find miniatures for this conflict? So here we go. Some miniatures that you could find. Uh, and, you know, I did a little bit of research on this, and it is actually quite difficult, more difficult than I thought it was going to be. Um, I have uh, three companies, uh, four if you count the 10 millimeter, but uh, three companies that I found that uh, have a really good line. Obviously, you're going to start with Perry's, of course, has a great line of War of the Triple Alliance. Uh, this company is the cornerstone, right? And these guys set the bar. You got cavalry, you got infantry, you got artillery for the Paraguayans, for the Brazilians, for the Argentinians, and the Uruguayans. Um, I'm going to throw you another one here. Matchlock Miniatures has a line of Pacific War 1879 to 1884 with generic infantrymen and officers and standard bearers in Kepis, Shakos, Havelocks, and they also have uh, Chilean Naval Brigade pieces that are really, really nice, all in 28 mil. And I found another company, Parkfield Miniatures, has a real nice line of South Americans with the Chilean, Argentinian, Venezuelan, and Gauchos. They got Gauchos, yo. You can't have a war in South America without the Gauchos. So you got to love it. And they look really, really cool. So uh, Parkfield Miniatures, and that's 28 millimeter as well. Now, for those of you who are inclined towards the big bloody battles, the monster big setups, and you just want to play the major conflicts, Pendraken has a line of war in the Pacific figures in 10 millimeter. So now you know that. Now, furthermore, if you find some of these figures that are a little too pricey for you, there's another option that I'm going to suggest. What you do is you get some of the more exotic figures that are a little pricey. You get some of those, and then you supplement those units with less expensive American Civil War figures. The uniforms are generally the same. All you got to do is alter the paint job, because you can find American Civil War with Havelocks, with uh, with the regular slouch hats. You can find them with Kepis. You see what I'm saying? And so you might be able to get, let's say, um, six or seven figures in some traditional Peruvian gear is going to cost you 20 bucks. Just throwing it out there. I'm, I'm not saying that that's the price, but I'm saying just work with me. So let's say you're at 20 bucks and for another, for 20 bucks extra, you can get 20 American Civil War figures. You can intersperse them and, and just do your paint job and it's a little bit cheaper. You see what I'm saying? Now, if you want to do naval battles, I haven't been able to find any company that made specific uh, Chilean or Bolivian or Brazilian ironclads because that's what would have been floating around out there doing battle during this time. However, these navies were furnished by England and the United States. So if you can't find anything in the 1 to 1200 scale in Chilean or Peruvian ironclads, you can always utilize U.S. Civil War or English ironclads to help make your day. So you can have some uh, actual naval conflicts during this time period. Now, as far as terrain goes, terrain is going to be wide and deep. Jungles, steppe, 
rivers, oceans, deserts, grasslands, hills, mountains, forests, villages. You have this vast array of terrain to choose from, which is always nice since most of the time the terrain is a deciding factor in determining your game play tactics. I hope, uh, you know, I this has been really kind of quick. So I hope that this short Cliff Note edition has maybe wet your whistle a little bit to help you in your thoughts about gaming the wars of South America. Next up, as I close the show, I promised a double-fisted dose of ACW. Let's do it. This is Shot and Shield. I hear that conditions in your army are appalling. Well, I'm sorry, but those are my conditions, and you'll just have to accept them. Shot and Shield is brought to you by Dr. Harold's Hobby Supplies, a one-stop shop for tools, paint, glue, brushes, wargaming bases, display stands, model trees, static grass, dice, dice trays, and terrain materials, and even some miniatures. New items added every week. Dr. Harold's is a new dropship site, and it's growing. See the growth at drherald.myshopify.com. That's drherald.myshopify.com. Dr. Harold's Hobby Supplies, a proud sponsor of Shot and Shield. This is Shot and Shield. I'm waiting for an explanation. A podcast dedicated to colonial and 19th century wargaming. Looks bad in the newspapers and upset civilians at their breakfast. This is Shot and Shield. Thank you for listening to Shot and Shield that can be heard on any of your favorite podcast apps. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Deezer, Ghana, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. You can also hear this episode on YouTube right now as that I'm starting to put uh, the audio of the show on YouTube as well. And if you keep listening to uh, or checking out the YouTube channel, you will find that uh, I'm going to take some of the episodes, the past episodes, and get those up there as well. I think I have four or five up there now, uh, and I have almost uh, almost 50. So it's going to take me a little while, but I'll get them all up there. I got to put them in like some type of MP4 format, and it's just a, it's a kind of a pain. But for you, I'll do anything. It's good stuff. Now, after digging and digging, I have found not one, but two offerings from the CBS series, You Are There. And in truth, I couldn't decide which one to go with, so I decided to just let you have them, have them both. The first, a CBS takes you to Gettysburg from 1948. CBS News says, You Are There. This is Don Hollenbeck of General Meade's Union Army Headquarters, somewhere behind the lines near Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. The situation here on this third day of July, 1863, is grave indeed for the Union forces. Two Confederate attacks have been repulsed in two days of heavy fighting, but the Northern casualties have been severe. The Union line is badly shaken, and there's serious concern as to whether it can successfully withstand the next attack that's expected at any minute from the crack Confederate troops of General Lee. And for the last two years, they've yet to lose a single battle in this war between the states. General George Gordon Meade at a news conference held a few moments ago announced... Gettysburg, July 3rd, 1863. CBS is there. Lee before Gettysburg, the high tide of the Confederacy. CBS asks you to imagine that our microphone is present at this decisive battle of the war between the states, between the North and the South, between the Union forces and the Confederates. 
All things are as they were then, except for one thing. CBS is there. This broadcast, produced and directed for Columbia by Robert Louis Cheon, is based on authentic historical facts and quotations. And now, Gettysburg, July 3rd, 1863, and Don Hollenbeck. This at Field Army Headquarters is one of tension and suspense. This is the most serious moment of the war between the states. The next few hours will tell whether or not the Confederate tide can be checked. If Meade fails to hold Lee here at Gettysburg this afternoon, the nation's capital will be at the mercy of the victorious Confederate troops. President Lincoln will be under increased pressure to accept the Confederate demands for peace. At this very moment, according to CBS reports from Washington, the Vice President of the Confederacy, Mr. Alexander Stevens, is now at Fortress Monroe in Chesapeake Bay under a flag of truce awaiting to be received by President Lincoln. If Meade's army is defeated here today on the soil of Pennsylvania, there may be many more who will say that the war is hopeless, that the North had better make peace with the South. And that would mean a nation permanently divided. It would mean the dissolution of the Union. That is why military experts here at Gettysburg are convinced that this battle may be the turning point of the war. And here to weigh the possibilities of the situation is our own CBS military analyst, Major George Fielding Elliott. It is now ten minutes of one. There has been an ominous silence over this Gettysburg battlefield since eleven o'clock this morning. Then General Slocum's Union Corps regained its position on Culp's Hill, the right anchor of the Union line. However, General George G. Meade, the Union Army commander, has not been deluded by this local success. He knows that General Robert E. Lee, the Confederate commander, has yet to throw the full might of his forces into a final attack. I am convinced on this third day of battle, that the attack will not come at the round top, the left anchor of the Union line, for good reasons, for 20,000 reasons, 20,000 dead and wounded Confederate and Union soldiers. I saw them fall in yesterday's violent fighting in a peach orchard and a wheat field when the Confederates under General Longstreet attacked the Union Third Corps under General Sickles. Also, I am reasonably sure that the Confederate attack will not be directed against the right flank of the Union line at Culp's Hill, and Cemetery Hill. And here's why. The Confederates under Generals A.P. Hill and Ewell attacked there last night, and although they took a heavy toll in northern casualties, they were beaten back by the troops under Union Generals Slocum and Howard. The only point of the Union line that the Confederates have yet to test is the center under General Hancock, and that's where I think the attack will come this afternoon. Major General George Gordon Meade has been in command of the Union Army of the Potomac for only five days. He is in a tight spot. I talked to him last night after a council of war at his headquarters. He admits that he is somewhat superior in numbers. He is far better off as regards supplies. His army is in good spirits under his leadership. He holds a strong position. But the Confederate troops here at Gettysburg are flushed with an unbroken string of victories. These men of Lee's Army of Northern Virginia have never been defeated. They believe they can do anything. And they are determined to smash this Union Army this afternoon, claim it as perhaps their final victim, and end this war. Confederate artillery has just come out of the woods opposite the center of the Union front. We have our CBS reporter right there. So go ahead, John Daly. Go ahead, Daly. Ten Confederate guns have been wheeled into position in front of me and a little bit to the left. From this distance, it's hard to tell whether they're trained here at the center or farther over on the line. The guns were brought up just a few moments ago but the Confederates who brought them out have disappeared back into the woods, taking their horses with them, leaving the guns as far as we can see unattended. 
General Hunt, the Northern Artillery Commander, standing behind me here on the ridge, is examining the Confederate pieces through his field glasses and giving orders to his aides. It may be that the general will move up more Union artillery, although I don't see how that's possible. For Cemetery Ridge, here in plain view of the Confederates a mile away, is lined with northern cannon almost wheel to wheel. There are over 80 guns on this ridge. There's no secret about it. The Confederates can certainly see them and can count them. Still no sign of any artillerymen around those Confederate cannons. Whether this means an immediate shelling, the beginning of the attack that we're expecting and waiting for, we just don't know. While we wait for the Confederates to make up their minds about those cannon over there, I want you to meet two privates from the Union ranks. First, Private John Burns, citizen volunteer, native of Gettysburg, cobbler by trade, and 72 years old. That's right, isn't it, Private Burns? Yeah. Private Burns has snow-white hair, deep-set eyes, three bandages, one on each arm, one on his left leg. You told me a while ago, Private Burns, that you got those wounds in the first day's fighting. Is that right? Yeah. Did you get them all at once? No. Private Burns is modest. The fact is, he's a veteran of the War of 1812. He's got a farm here at Gettysburg. When the Confederates came, he got his old musket and powder horn and joined up with the famous Wisconsin Iron Brigade. In the fighting that followed, Burns was wounded in the right arm, taken to the rear, and his wound was dressed. He returned immediately to the front and was wounded in the other arm. He was taken to the rear again. His second wound was dressed, but he came back and was wounded a third time, this time in the left leg. But even that didn't stop him because here he is with his rifle in his hand, waiting to see what those Confederate cannon over there in the distance are going to do. Right, Private Burns? Yeah. Well, don't you think you've done enough fighting for one man, Private Burns, especially for a man of your age? Don't you think that... that, mister, don't start telling me where I belong. I'm sorry. I didn't mean it that way, Burns. Well, then, why don't you say what you mean? All right, I will. I'd like to know why you volunteered. They took my cow. Ain't got no right taking my cow. Is that the only reason you are fighting this war for a cow? One reason, mister. It's a good one, ain't it? Well, what are some of the others? I'm a farmer and a cobbler. I've lived on this little piece I got here for over 70 years. I'm not too old to work it, and I'm not too old to defend it. And, mister, I don't know whether you know this either, but if we lose this battle today, I not only lose my cow and my piece of property, but we lose the Union. We lose this country. And that's something I fought for in 1812, and I'm fighting for it again. Thank you, Private Burns. It looks as though you're going to get a chance to do some more fighting this afternoon. There's still no sign of Confederate artillerymen around those cannon over here. Over there, rather. And here's another Union soldier, Private Tom McGaw. He's tall and lanky, with speckles and a mess of red hair shooting out from under a blue cap. Well, what do you think about those Confederate cannon over there, Private? What do you think it means? I don't know. Well, how old are you, Private McGaw? Eighteen. Well, would you speak just a little bit louder, please? Uh, eighteen. Eighteen. Well, I understand that that's the average age of half the Union Army here today, Tom. It seems awful young, doesn't it? Oh, I don't know. Well, why are there so many young ones like you here? Well, uh, after the Battle of Chancellorsville, of course, the older fellow's time was up, so so they went home. Oh, I see. And then uh, youngsters like you volunteered to fill the ranks. No, sir. I was drafted. Where are you from, Tom? Illinois country. And what were you doing when you were drafted? Oh, working in my dad's store. Are you married? Well, what are you blushing about? Have you got a sweetheart? Oh, I guess so. Does she write to you? Oh, about every two weeks. And who do you miss the most? Your mother or your sweetheart? You miss them both, don't you? Yes, sir. 
Well, how do you like the Army, Tom, today? Excuse me, Tom. The Confederates are moving more artillery out of the woods into the open position beyond the Emmitsburg Road, which runs diagonally through the battlefield. I can't see what's going on very well, because the guns are too far to my left, and the Kadori house out there in the middle of the battlefield is blocking my line of vision. But Jackson Beck, who's over on Big Round Top, two miles to my left, can see them better. So over to Jackson Beck. 75 guns. It looks like the whole works this time, John. I'd say about 75 guns on good ground over on my right. They're uh, moving them along the Emmitsburg Road from the Peach Orchard northward for about 1,300 yards. Some of the cannon was close to six or 700 yards from the northern line. The Confederates are beginning to point the guns, most of them are Parrots and Napoleons, toward the center of the Union line. Uh, in some of the interviews I've had here with the veteran Union officers, they say that they cannot recall such an unusually heavy concentration of Confederate artillery at any one point. Now, there's no telling how many more guns are screened in those woods further down to the center and on past the center and all up and down that long Confederate line. Now, looking through my glasses from here, I can see that once again, as before, the Confederate artillerymen have taken their horses back into the woods. The guns are unmanned, but... We're not forgetting that they can be fired at a moment's notice. All the cannoneers have to do is run out of the woods and let go. But Ken Roberts over at the far right of the Union line has news of cavalry action, so over to Ken Roberts. I've just received a report that a heavy force of Confederate cavalry has ridden far around and behind this right flank of the Union army, and at this moment has been intercepted and engaged by Union cavalry under Generals Kilpatrick and Gregg. It is almost certain that this surprise cavalry movement is a part of the Confederate tactics now shaping up rapidly. In other words, while the Confederate cavalry, presumably under General Stewart, is trying to turn the right flank of the Union Army, the main Confederate attack will try to break through its center. We haven't heard the Confederate artillery open fire yet. We have no news about the progress of the cavalry engagement, but we expect to hear in a moment or two. And while we're waiting, by special permission of Union General Howard... And with the consent of the man himself, I'm going to let you hear from a Confederate prisoner of war taken in the action on Culp's Hill early this morning. He's a huge, brawny man, about six feet tall, dark, sunburned, heavy, bushy beard. He's wearing reddish homespun pants, shirt, a broad-brimmed wool hat, and brand-new shoes. That's right. What shoes I ever had since this year war started. Where'd you get them? Over yonder. Gettysburg day before yesterday, and we kicked the daylights out of the Yankees and threw them out of town. Well, do you think you'll enjoy wearing those shoes in some northern prison camp? Northern prison camp? Man, where you been this war? Don't you know Mark Roberts going to bust this Yankee line wide open this afternoon and take me to Washington with him? You're pretty confident, aren't you? Well, sure. You remember what Mark Roberts did to the Yankees in Manassas? Remember what he did at Sharpsburg? You mean Antietam, don't you? No, sir, I mean Sharpsburg. And Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville? Ha! Every time he was outnumbered two to one. Every time we railed him. <laughs> you trying to tell me that today's going to be any different? Well, how about those new Spencer carbines the Yankee cavalry had here at Gettysburg? They're the first repeaters ever used in this war. They shoot eight times and yours only shoot once. Yeah. We know how to aim, boy. <laughs> Then uh, you don't think much of the Yanks as fighters. Well, I suppose they'd fight pretty good if they didn't have to tote such big loads. 
know, they're in the toting business. They ain't in the fighting business. <laughs> Man alive, I don't see how they can move with all that stuff on their back. <laughs> I, uh, I forgot to ask your name, soldier. Where are you from? Jim Crocker. I'm from Mississippi. Well, if you're so certain of winning, maybe you'd like to tell us where General Lee is going to attack this afternoon. What's the matter, boy? You you scared, huh? You stick with me. I'll be scared. <laughs> well, I don't think you're going to laugh at this. This note that you've been handed to me says that your General Stewart's cavalry has been repulsed behind the Union lines and is riding back to the Confederate lines as fast as it can. That ain't got nothing to do with the cannon up yonder. That's where the Yanks are going to get it. Well, nothing's happened yet. There's something to have a cutter truck. About two miles to my left. There's another one. Same direction. I can't see it to the center of the line out of my range of view. So over to John Daly. The Confederate artillerymen are swarming around their guns in plain sight of our position. Behind the little top of trees, they've opened fire with fast guns. The General and his staff have ridden farther behind the lines, out of range of the Confederate fire. 
Now the northern fire has stopped. I don't know whether it's been knocked out or what. But the Confederate fire is still going. This little whitewashed farmhouse is still taking a heavy Confederate fire. The shells are exploding all around. The fire is especially heavy. Now the Confederate fire is stopping. I don't know what this means. The damage at Union headquarters is terrific. It must be an awful shambles in the center of the northern line. We've been trying to make contact again with John Daly, but we haven't been able to since the start of the cannonade, so we'll switch you again to Jackson Beck on Big Round Top to see what's happening. Go ahead, Beck. This is Jackson Beck. Something is going on. It's going on over on Seminary Ridge in the woods up there. Now, through my glasses, I can see the... This is Don Hollenbeck at Union Headquarters. We've just established contact again with John Daly at the center of the Union line. Go ahead, John Daly. The Confederate infantry has come out of the woods one mile across from thousands of them. Now they've halted. They're dressing the line right and left. It's at least three quarters of a mile long. Straight line of men in butternut and gray. Their rifles are at right shoulders, if on parade. Their battle flags are coming out now, coming out of those woods. Five... Six, seven, ten. There must be at least plenty of them up and down that line. They're red, deepened by the sun. Up here on the ridge, Union Reserve Artillery is pulling into division. Through my glasses, I can make out among those flags the 14th, the 18th, the 19th, the 57th Virginians. They belong to General Pickett's Virginia Division. I remember seeing those same blood-red banners at Fredericksburg. There's the 22nd and 34th of North Carolina. They must be under General Pettigrew. There comes the 1st and the 14th Tennessee. Troops from Alabama and Mississippi also, and many more. I believe some of them are under General Trimble. It looks like the Confederates are going to charge under Pickett, Pettigrew, and Trimble. Many of the Confederates are wearing blood-stained bandages, but still they keep coming. A second line has come out of the woods, forming behind that first one. The first gray line hasn't moved yet. It's still dressing its formation, and all of this in the full view of the Union line, three-quarters of a mile away. There must be at least 10,000 Confederate soldiers over there now. There comes some more. A third line is coming out of the woods. Five thousand more. I'm still using my glasses. I can see a Confederate officer on a big black horse riding up and down in front of that first line. He's wearing a blue overcoat in this hot July sun. I think it's Garnet of Virginia. There are four more officers on horseback coming out in front of that long gray line. Swords drawn. Other officers are on foot. The Union artillery reserves are ready. The infantry behind the wall in front of me is tense and expectant and strangely silent. Through my glasses, I can see another Confederate officer. He's on horseback. He's placed his hat on the tip of his sword. He's pointing it at this direction, and he's shouting to his men. It must be the signal to advance. Yes, it is. That dull gray line is moving forward, marching, marching. Common time, common time, arms at right shoulder. Perfect formation. A notion of men on parade, regiment after regiment, brigade after brigade. Their glittering muskets look like a solid mass of steel. They move with the regularity of a, of, a, of a pendulum. This is incredible and magnificent. Lee's proudest, finest bearded veterans, some in uniform, many of them in civilian clothes, straw hats, caps, aristocrats and barefooted mountaineers, the flower of the South, men who glory in close fighting. They're marching now with unbelievable confidence, and they're headed right up here. The Confederates are, well, perhaps a, a little more than a half a mile away now. They're still in perfect formation except that each flank appears to be gradually closing in, converging towards this clump of trees where I'm standing. It looks like they mean to hurl 15,000 men right at this point of the Union line. I just can't believe it. 
Not a shot has been fired on either side yet, and that gray line is still coming on. Their long line is getting narrower and deeper. It's pushing over fences in their way, striding through fields of wheat, stubble, and tall grass. It's nearer and nearer to the Emmitsburg Road, which is just about in the middle of the battlefield. Two hundred yards, those Confederates have marched, and not a shot fired. Why don't the northern guns up here open up? Why don't they shoot? Why don't they... I can see those Confederates about two miles up to my right. They're charging hard. They're charging toward the center of the line now where John Daly was. They're charging straight at the center of the Union line with cold steel. Now the Union infantry has opened up. A flash of flame and a roar, and they're playing havoc with the charging Confederate lines. I see a mounted Confederate officer waving his men forward. Now, through my glasses at two miles, it's difficult to see clearly over the details of this action, but I'll try and give you as much as I can. It's impossible to describe everything that's going on up there. Too much is happening. That Confederate officer on the horse is down, and the horse is racing back to the Confederate line. There goes another Confederate officer blasted off his horse. Now a third one is down, but he's back on his feet. It's the man with the hat on the point of his sword. I can see him pointing his sword at the Union line. It's odd how one little man with a hat on his sword can center your attention, but it's the only way I can trace the tie of the battle. There goes the first Confederate volley from at least 5,000 rifles. The Northern infantry, Northern infantry seems to be wavering. Cannoneers behind them must have been cut to ribbons by this murderous Confederate fire. Smoke and the dust of the fighting makes it awfully hard to tell exactly what's happening up there now. But they should be getting courier reports back at Meade's headquarters. Hollenbeck, Don Hollenbeck, can you hear me? Yes, Jack, yes, go ahead. Are you getting any reports from the battle? That's right. Couriers are coming down here all the time, but so far we don't know much more than you can see from Roundhouse. The fire's terrible. We can only guess how bad it is for the wounded coming in. We've just had a courier report that the first line has been hit hard. Can you see anything, Jack? The uh, Union infantry is falling back. The Union line is breaking. Where I can see the line, the blue-coated men are running back. About 5,000 Confederates have stormed the ridge. They've broken the Union line. The ridge is there. Now they're taking cover behind the Union stone wall. Through my glasses, I can see that Confederate officer with his hat on his sword standing on the wall up there. He's urging his men to follow him. There they go, about a hundred. They're swarming over the Union guns. Now they're, they're, they're turning them around. They're turning the guns around. 
They're going to fire on the Northerners with their own guns. Now, the Union infantry is rallying. They seem to be reforming. The Northerners are firing volley after volley at the Confederates at the guns. And the Confederates are going down. They're being blasted down by the Northern rifles. There goes that gallant Confederate officer. He's down. Down, his body is draped over a gun. That broken Union line has reformed. It has reorganized. Now it's charging back to retake that part of the line. The only part that gave way in the charge. The Confederates see them coming. They're pushing madly into an angle of the stone wall, which I can't see from here. Hollenbeck, do you have any reports at headquarters? Yes, Jack. A courier just came in from General Gibbon, and the spearhead of that Confederate charge looks like it's been broken. That's the way we see it here. But the Confederates are still attacking in an angle, that angle to the right of that little clump of trees. Can you see how they're making out in there? Well, the, the Union cannon have stopped firing, but it's tough to see what's going on. Such a mass of men, arms, smoke, and fire, swords, and butts of guns. Through my glasses, it's plain that men are falling at every step. In that angle of that stone wall, it's a bloody angle now. The Confederate color sergeant is using his flag staff as a club. The Confederates are crowding around their battle flags. Flags have waved so proudly such a short time before, and they're now being cut down one by one. Northerners are closing in on the right, left, and in front. Those Confederates are in a death trap. They're lost unless they can get reinforcements right away. Now, through my glasses over there, I can see those Confederate reinforcements, but they're going the wrong way. They can't see their objective because of the smoke of battle. Now, back up in the center of the Union line, the Northerners are stepping up that brutal rifle fire from three sides. Now, it looks like the Confederates are wavering. They are wavering. Jack, Jack, Jack. John Daly's back in the center of the line. Let's give it to him. Go ahead, John Daly. throwing down their guns and their swords was the only thing they could do. No human being could stand up under such fire. In front of me is the body of the gallant Confederate officer who led that charge over the stone wall that bent further into the Union line than any other Confederate. His body is hanging over a Union cannon, left hand on the barrel, his right hand still grasping his sword, his gray hat clean up to the hilt. He is one of what must be at least 10,000 Confederates who were either killed, wounded, or taken prisoner in the fighting here today. Oh, the cheer! It's for General Meade. Here comes the Northern Commander, General Meade. He's riding fast down the Federal line to my right. The roar you're hearing is the entire Union line standing up and saluting him with a cheer. I'll try to get to him as he passes. He's dressed in his familiar summer uniform of dark blue without badge or ornament, except for the shoulder stripes of his braid and the light straight sword. His hat is thrust over his bearded white face. Here he comes now. General Meade. Gettysburg, July 3rd, 1863. Pickett's gallant charge failed, and the high tide of the Confederacy is over. You have been listening to The Battle of Gettysburg, another broadcast in the series CBS Is There, produced and directed for Columbia by Robert Louis Sheehan. From 1948, CBS took you to Gettysburg. Now, let's CBS take you to the ocean where the Monitor and the Merrimack are about ready to go head-to-head. This edition is also from 1948, and you are there. 
This is Don Hollenbeck for CBS News in Washington. It will soon be dawn this morning of March 9th, 1862, off the Atlantic coast of Hampton Roads, Virginia, 150 miles southeast of the capital. The next few moments will see the return of daylight to that pivotal point in the North's naval blockade of the South. And according to all experienced federal observers here in Washington, the coming moments may also see the return to Hampton Roads of the Confederate ironclad Merrimack. If the Merrimack can break out into the open sea, round Old Point at the southernmost tip of Maryland, proceed northward to attack the northern ports on the Atlantic seaboard, the most northern ports have been struck. Washington, D.C., you are there. Washington, on the dawn of the day that will see the decisive naval battle between the North and the South, between the Federals and the Confederates. CBS takes you back 86 years to the surprise engagement that ushered in a new era of sea warfare. All things are as they were then, except for one thing. When CBS is there, you are there. You are there, produced and directed by Robert Louis Cheon, is based on authentic historical fact and quotation. And now, CBS News in Washington and John Hollenbeck. So heavy with foreboding and impending calamities. Here in Washington, there are grim faces at the White House, tight-lipped comment from officers at the Northern Department of the Navy. When reports first reached the Navy Department stating that the Merrimack was venturing forth out of Norfolk to challenge the Federal fleet, there were expressions of amusement and cynicism. Northern Navy officers laughingly imagined the ironclad as a humpbacked turtle grotesquely waddling her ineffective way through the rough waters. But then the Merrimack struck. Within a matter of hours, the northern sloop Cumberland was rammed and sunk. The 50-gun sailing frigate Congress was abandoned and on fire. And the 40-gun steam auxiliary frigate Minnesota was aground and helpless. At twilight, the Confederate ironclad retired toward Norfolk, leaving behind the question, what can be done to prevent the Merrimack from returning and destroying the entire northern fleet? That's the situation as we see it here in Washington this morning. However, CBS correspondent John Daly is now at Hampton Roads aboard the frigate Roanoke, the flagship of the Northern Naval Squadron. So for a report from the actual scene of the expected naval battle, we switch you to John Daly aboard the Roanoke. The Merrimack has not been sighted as yet. And here aboard the Roanoke, daylight, daylight rather, is beginning to streak the eastern sky, but the sea is still shrouded in a heavy, swirling mist. Somewhere out in that mist, about a mile to my right on the riprap, federal tugs are desperately trying to release the battered Minnesota from the shoals on which she grounded yesterday. Perhaps you can hear the tug whistles in the distance. Also to my right, hidden by the mists and the angry water of the roads, lie the hulks of the federal warships Congress and Cumberland, both of them sunk in yesterday's action. Right now, here on the Roanoke, every man jack is searching the curtain of mist that hangs over the sea, waiting and watching for the first sight of the Confederacy's juggernaut of destruction. The air is tense. The men seem calm and determined. There's no false optimism. The nearness of new fighting has produced a, a solemn, a quiet, well, almost a prayerful attitude among the officers and the crew. With me at our CBS microphone is Commander Prescott Singleton, one of the senior officers of the Roanoke. Commander Singleton... Do you think that the Merrimack is on her way to attack the fleet again, sir? Foregone conclusion. Well, what did you think of yesterday's engagement? Well fought, I should say. Well fought indeed. 
Well, do you happen to know who is in command of the Merrimack, sir? Yes. Uh, Captain is Franklin Buchanan. I'm told he holds the rank of Commodore in the Southern Navy. Oh. Good man. Knew him before the war. Knew him well. Uh, shipped together, the two of us. I see, sir. I, uh, I'm rather disappointed in him, I might say. Disappointed. In what way, sir? Well, it's, it's difficult to put into words, but in the Navy, we have traditions. Very high and proud traditions, I might say. I just cannot conceive of a good Navy man skulking behind iron plates. But don't you consider the Merrimack to be a very ingenious ship of war, sir? Well, yes, but uh, it's, uh, it's not the way to fight upon the sea. It, uh, it, it's unethical. Well, might I ask um, what you would think if you were given command of an ironclad? I'd resign my commission first. Well, then you feel, Commander Singleton, that the Merrimack is not a legitimate weapon of naval warfare. Absolutely not. The introduction of new and novel methods of warfare I must treat with repugnance. Men have been fighting on the high seas for centuries, according to certain basic laws of strategy. Nelson, John Paul Jones, Drake. In short, sir, the sea is no place for experimentation. But, sir, can anything prevent the Merrimack from further ravaging the northern fleet? We will stand against her. We will fight her bravely and gallantly. Count on that. Our hopes, sir, shall rest upon the good lord, good marksmanship, and good, solid New England oak. Thank you, Commander Singleton. The mist is still very heavy hanging over the water here, and there's still no sign of the Merrimack. So this is John Daly aboard the Roanoke. Now back to CBS Washington. This is Don Hollenbeck. A moment ago, you heard Commander Singleton, one of the senior officers aboard the northern flagship Roanoke, say that he knew the name of the Confederate captain of the Merrimack, and that raises an interesting question. How much advance information did the Northern Department of the Navy have on the Merrimack? Quincy Howe has just come from the Department of the Navy where he talked with Northern officers. Quincy, was the North aware of the fact that the South was building an ironclad? Uh, yes, Don, they were. Uh, the Navy Department in Washington, through various secret agents, has known all along that the Merrimack, uh, the South now calls her the Virginia, was being rebuilt uh, as an ironclad. You say rebuilt. The Merrimack, then, isn't an original construction. No, it seems not, Don. The Merrimack uh, was a wooden ship in the American Navy undergoing repairs at Norfolk Harbor uh, when the fighting began. Uh, because the Federal forces couldn't uh, tore off anywhere to safety, they scuttled her before they evacuated uh, the city of Rono. Then Southern engineers came along, uh, raised up the burnt-out hulk, and converted uh, what used to be a graceful frigate into this present ugly, iron-coated monster of, of destruction. Well, then the North knew about the Merrimack in advance and didn't do anything to counter her because they discounted her power. Is that it? Yeah, that, that's about the size of it, uh, Don. Uh, now, now, in the considered opinion of every northern naval officer whom I've talked to, there's only just one thing that can stop the Merrimack, and well, that's a miracle. There's no defense against the ironclad. The way she could withstand the concentrated fire of even the most powerful batteries that the North has to offer on land or sea, well, that's, that's shown that she can defy every weapon that the Federal forces now have at their command. Uh, then the Merrimack's iron plating permits her to get close enough to any opposing ship to drive home that ram of hers with deadly effect. Well, then, as it looks now, Quincy, nothing can stop the Merrimack. What then? Uh, the answer now just seems all too clear. Uh, the Confederacy will simply have broken the northern blockade. And just think what that means. Uh, up to now, the northern blockade of the southern ports, well, that's been the Union's most effective economic weapon against the Confederacy. The Merrimack, though, now threatens to destroy that weapon. And the result will be that cotton, cotton, the money crop of the South, will again start flowing across the sea. And in exchange, of course, the South 
We'll get cargo upon cargo of badly needed guns, ammunition, food, all the essentials of war. A victory by the Merrimack uh, would be likely to increase the war-making power of the Confederacy, oh, I guess maybe ten times over. Then there's this angle. England may decide to recognize the Confederate States of America as a sovereign nation and therefore entitled to all the international privileges of the belligerent. Another point, Quincy. What do you think this effect will be, the effect of the Merrimack? Now, what will it have on naval strategy in this country and around the world? Well, all I can say, Don, is everywhere I went, I heard people saying things like this. The era of the wooden ship is over. Every wooden war vessel now afloat, all the way from England's great ships of the line to the lowliest little corvette of the smallest nation. They've all become obsolete. Just in one day, we've witnessed a complete revolution in maritime warfare. And no one Excuse is... Excuse me, Quincy, I'm sorry. A message, uh, we've just got a message from Douglas Edwards at Fortress Monroe overlooking Hampton Roads. He has with him the wife of a federal officer who's just come through the southern lines. So we take you now to Fortress Monroe and Douglas Edwards. I'm in the correspondence room at Fortress Monroe. The young woman with me is Mrs. Lucy Creighton. Where is your home, Mrs. Creighton? Providence. Will you speak a little louder, please? Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, Mrs. Creighton, I know you must be very tired. You've had a long and hard journey, haven't you? Yes, I have. I've just come through the lines on a safe conduct path. I understand. But will you tell us, please, what you were doing in the South? My husband was wounded and taken prisoner at Fort Donaldson in February. It was only a month after we were married. They arranged to let me go see him. Mrs. Creighton, you were in Norfolk, Virginia last night. Uh, that's southern territory. Can you tell us, please, how the people there received the news of the Merrimack's victory yesterday? Well, we were very happy. They were shouting, dancing in the street. They had a torchlight parade. I guess it must have been like that in every city of the South. Well, Mrs. Creighton, would you say, then, that the people of the South feel that the Merrimack is going to bring them victory in the war? Oh, yes. They were all saying that after the Merrimack thinks our fleet is going to go north and bombard Philadelphia and New York. They were sure it would do that. And they were yelling and shouting that the war would soon be over. Go on, please. When the Confederate officer who accompanied me last night took me back to the northern lines, it was like riding through a carnival. When I reached the exchange point, the southern officer tipped his hat. He was very kind to me all the time, very nice. He tipped his hat and said that he was so glad the war would be over soon and we would be at peace again. There's no doubt, then, that the morale of the people of the Confederacy has been lifted tremendously by the events of the last 24 hours. Oh, I would say so, yes. All the time I was traveling in the South, I never saw anyone laugh or act like they were happy until last night in Norfolk when the news of the Merrimack came. This is Don Hollenbeck at CBS Washington. We've interrupted Doug Edwards at Fortress Monroe because the Merrimack has been sighted. The immediate target seems to be the frigate Minnesota. Ken Roberts is aboard that ship, so now to the Minnesota and Ken Roberts. The Merrimack is in sight. We can see the Merrimack. Just a few moments ago, the sun began to break through the overcast, and like a curtain rising on a stage, the mist lifted to reveal the squat and ugly form of the Merrimack, not more than a mile or two away, breasting the foam-capped water. She looks like a slanting black roof afloat in a flood. 
the opposite here of all the Minnesota estimate the top speed of the Merrimack to be only five knots, so it will be some time yet before the Confederate ironclad comes into cannon range. I've also learned that the Merrimack carries four guns on each slanting side, and one pivot gun four and another aft, making a total of ten guns in all. A side of sheathed in four inches of iron plate. All the Minnesota guns here are primed. The crew has been supplemented by many survivors of the Cumberland and the Congress, and directly above us we can see the big land-based guns of Fortress Monroe, also waiting for the Merrimack to come into range. The uh, tugs are still pulling at the Minnesota, trying to get her free. The officers of the Minnesota and the tugs calling to one another as they cast lines, tighten and pull, then recast, tighten and pull again. Up on the bridge of the Minnesota, I can see the officers clustered together, watching the approach of the Merrimack. They're a grim, silent group. Now, as I look across the water, I can see Old Glory flying from the protruding mast of the Cumberland. Standing beside me is one of the survivors of that ill-fated ship, a young seaman taken aboard during the night after spending 14 hours clinging to a piece of wreckage. The Minnesota's commanding officer has given us permission to talk to him. What's your name, sailor? Charles Horman, seaman second class. What was it like yesterday, Charles? What was the feeling aboard the Cumberland when the Merrimack came up for the attack? Well, first off, we didn't think it was going to attack. We had our wash out on deck, and some of the boys were swabbing deck like as if nothing were going to happen. We didn't know. When, when did you clear for action? Well, it wasn't until almost she got into range. Then what happened, Charles? Well, first, I don't know, but first I think the Congress started firing, and, and then we saw she was coming our way, so we began. Who was coming our way? The Merrimack. So we began firing. Did the Merrimack answer with her guns? No, sir, she didn't. It, it was the craziest thing. Listen, it was crazy. She, she didn't fire, not until she was so close we could almost reach out and touch her. That's how close I think. And, and then she let go with her bow gun. The shot went right through us, right to fore and aft. Killed some of the boys, and those who were hurt started yelling and cussing. What happened then, Charles? Well, we fired everything we had at her then. Everything, all the guns we had. And we could see our shells bouncing off the side, bouncing into the water. It was crazy, honest. And the Merrimack kept right on, coming closer and closer, and we couldn't even figure out what was happening. She just kept coming at it. And then it was like somebody or something had, had got under our ship and heaved us into the air. Into the air? Yeah. You couldn't see nothing, only hear wood breaking, and, and the other guys yelling, and we filled it over until the decks were awash. Go on, Charles. Well, when we righted, the Cumberland began to lift fast because our whole underbelly had been ripped by the ram of the Merrimack. Just a, a chunk chewed out, and the water poured in. That was on the starboard side below deck. After that, there wasn't anything to do but jump, so I jumped. Believe me, I, I didn't even think about it. When Lieutenant Morris, who was, who was deck officer, yelled for us to jump, I just jumped and prayed. When I got in the water, there was a bunch of spar floating nearby, and I got a hold of it, and that was how I managed to save my life. Well, it wasn't the guns of the Merrimack that did the big damage then. It was the ram. Ram. It, it was the ram. Thank you for talking with us, Charles Harmon. Now, here's another sailor from the Cumberland, but one whose experience is even more incredible, more dramatic. Your name, sailor? Kavanaugh, Jimmy Kavanaugh, desperate man. Well, every man who witnessed yesterday's engagement, Jimmy, is talking about your heroic effort to board the Merrimack. Tell us about it. Well, look, I don't know. It wasn't anything. You were aboard the Cumberland. Uh, yes, sir. Both the same. That's right. Go ahead, Jimmy. Well, uh, after we caught the broadside of the Merrimack, she came in so close that an officer on the Merrimack opened a porthole and yelled out, Surrender, Morris, or I'll sink you. That's Lieutenant Morris, deck officer of the Cumberland. Uh, yes, sir. That's right. And you know something? Here's something awful funny. It turns out that the officer on the Merrimack was a Lieutenant Jones who went to Annapolis with our Lieutenant Morris. 
that so? Yes, sir. Well, what did your Lieutenant Morris reply? Morris? <laughs> Morris yells back, never, never. I'll think first. By this time, the Merrimack was under our deck. Actually, under the deck. So I jumped on it. I had two pistols stuck in my belt. I jumped on it. They killed so many of us, you see. My boys, they were. A hundred were dead, you see. And the others screaming and yelling. Well, I I guess I lost my head, I guess. All I could think was that I wanted to get to that Merrimack and get even, see? For my boys to get even. Yes, go on, Jimmy. So I didn't even think, I don't know... It happened like that, see? I don't know. I jumped over on the Merrimack and tried to climb her side. Get to the gun ports. Uh, somewhere where I could see inside and let him have it with my gun. That's what I wanted to do, but it was so slippery. Like our greased forest. The iron was so slippery I couldn't get a foothold or nothing. Every time I climbed up a little, I'd fall back in the water. Then I'd try again and fall back again. All the time, the guns over my head were shooting and the bang was making me dead, so... So I, I saw it was no use, see? And then... Well, by then, the Cumberland was rammed and sinking, so I dived back in the water and held on to some wreckage, and later they picked me up. That was a very brave thing you did, Jimmy. A hundred of my kids they killed. I, I, I wanted to do something. That's all I wanted to do, you see? I know your action will be well rewarded. If I could have gotten a toehold, you see... It was like grease. The, the sides were so slippery. Well, thank you, Boston Sage, Jimmy Cavanaugh. And now I have another sailor, a man who was aboard the Congress, who can give us a first-hand account of what happened there. His name is Pete Finley from New York City. Yeah, I sure wish I was there again. What's your rating, Pete? Ah, rating? Me? Uh, no rating for me. I'm just a member of the Naval Brigade. Well, that's kind of like the militia, isn't it? Not regular Navy. Yeah, not regular Navy, that's right. Well, what were you doing aboard the Congress? You better ask that of Father Abraham. You mean President Lincoln? That's what I mean. It was him who put us aboard that leaky old tub. Were there many Naval Brigade men aboard your ship? Three companies. What about the regular crew? They've been discharged four or five days ago. They're enlisted. What's up? We were put aboard to make it look like the ship was manned, I suppose. There wasn't even a single trained gunner aboard. Can you imagine that? So when a Merrimack, she lets go of us, and we see the Cumberland going, so we run up the white flag. And you couldn't you... expect any different, now, could you? I know. We've not been trained for fighting, if you know what I mean. Well, when it comes time, the white flag has gone up the mast, and I says to myself, I says, Petey boy, send the tank for you, and over the side I go. Over the side? Yeah, you couldn't expect no different. Now, could you expect different? Well, tell me, Pete, do you know when you'll get another ship? Me? Another ship? With that thing, that, that iron boiler out there still wide and wild, oh, no, sir, no part of the water for me, not for Petey Finley. The land for me, and I'll kiss it, so help me if I ever get these big feet to feel the land again, I'll... I'm yes, sure you will, and thanks, Pete. Yeah, I'm glad you're sure, mister. Wish I was. Now, looking out to sea again, the Merrimack looms near us, smoke belching from her chimney, an ugly, misshapen monster. The commander just given a clear ship for this is CBS Washington. We take you now to Jackson Beck, somewhere in Hampton Roads. Come in, Jackson Beck. Brooklyn, New York. And here, for the first time, 
I was told of the nature of my secret mission. I was to accompany the monitor on its journey to Hampton Road. And, uh, well, here I am. Now, what is the monitor? Well, I have by my side the young commander of this unique naval vessel, Lieutenant John L. Worden. Lieutenant Worden, suppose you answer that question for us. Just what is the monitor? Well, sir, we hope the monitor is the answer to the Northern Pearls. The craft of unique design, the idea of John Erickson, the famous Swedish-American inventor. It's iron-hulled, surmounted by an armored circular turret, nine feet high, 20 feet diameter, covered with eight folded layers of one-inch iron. The turret and the little pilot house that lays forward are the only deck structures, except for smokestacks and exhaust grates, which we remove before going into action. I see. Uh, what about your armament, Lieutenant Worden, or is that restricted information? No, sir, it's no secret. We carry two 11-inch carbines. Well, the reports we have of the Merrimack say she carries ten guns. Yeah, that's true, but her guns are smaller and stationary. I see. Ours are fitted into a revolving turret. We can shoot in any direction without having to maneuver into a firing position. Well, then you think the monitor is an even match for the Merrimack, Lieutenant Worden? I think we're more than an even match, and we stand ready to prove it. Uh, can you tell us just how the monitor came to be here in Hampton Roads right at this crucial moment? <laughs> I guess, guess a good part of that is luck. Uh-huh. Uh, we set out from Brooklyn three days ago. Our orders were for us to head for Hampton Roads at full steam. Last night, we anchored in the darkness off the Roanoke, and one of our officers, my second-in-command, Lieutenant Sam Green, went aboard the Roanoke for orders. No one knew him, and he received his orders from the Admiral in secret. Now, these orders were clear and simple. To take up a position near the Minnesota and defend her from attack by the Merrimack. Well, we anchored in close under the Minnesota's lee side so that we were hidden from sight. Now that the Merrimack is coming in range, we're sailing out to carry out our orders to defend the Minnesota, and we're going to do just that. How many men? What's that? Merrimack has opened fire. You miss. Merrimack's right, sir. Take over the firing turret, Green. I'm going forward to the pilot house. The Merrimack has opened fire. The first salvo missed us by some 20 yards, but the concussion of the shells is tossing the monitor around like a cork. Here in the turret, the gun crew is stripped to the waist. There isn't enough room for a man to stretch out his arms. It's hot in here, and it's going to get left hunter. The crew is getting ready to fire. I can see the Merrimack through a tiny slit in the metal turret. It is about 1,000 yards away. The snouts of her cannon are smoking from that first broadside, and the second one should be coming in. The The monitor has opened fire. We have opened fire. Fast is stepping. The heat. I can't think of it. We are being hit. No doubt you can hear that. But the shells of the Merrimack are bouncing hard. CBS in Washington. The noise of the firing aboard the monitor makes it impossible to hear Jackson Beck, but John Daly aboard the northern flagship Roanoke has an excellent view of the action in Hampton Roads, so we switch now to him. Come in, John Daly, aboard the flagship Roanoke. The battle between the monitor and the Merrimack has begun. The Merrimack towering high above the water, and the tiny monitor, David and Goliath, the two ironclads. Are not more than a few hundred yards apart now, flinging tons of iron at each other's side. It's a fantastic sight to those of us who covered other naval engagements. 
No printed spars, no ripped wooden hulls. The Merrimack guns are firing at will, and they keep up a steady hammering barrage. The monitor fires one gun at a time at intervals. The very first blow that the Federal monitor struck sent the Merrimack reeling backwards, but just for a moment. She came right back in again, and now she's letting go with every piece that she has, and incredibly, that shot is just glancing off the rounded turret of the monitor without doing any perceptible damage. Not a bit of it as far as we can see from here. The gallant little ship takes the full force of the shot without a tremor, without a sign of distress, and then she returns every salvo with a blast of her own. Her turret spins around as soon as one of her cannon is fired, and the second cannon is all loaded and ready to go. Right now, this fight has gotten so hot, the smoke is so thick, it's kind of hard to make out exactly what is going on, except that the two of them, the, the Monitor and the Merrimack, are actually standing toe-to-toe and slugging it out just like two bare-handed prisoners in the middle of a ring. Big blast of sound. They're just firing their guns as fast as they can load them. The Merrimack has just pulled out from the cloud of smoke, and she's leaving the Monitor. The Confederate Ironclad is evidently going to try something. Then she's going to try to attack the Minnesota, one of the wooden federal ships. And here comes the monitor. The federal ironclad is sweeping in between the two of them, intercepting. She's crossing her ironclad in between the Confederate Merrimack and that wooden Minnesota. She's challenging the Merrimack. She's challenging her to come back and get combat once again. The Merrimack is forced to turn. She's forced to turn and is turning on the monitor, making full steam. The Confederate Merrimack looks like she's going to try to ram the Northern Champion if she can. The two of them are almost deck to deck, but the monitor's sweeping aside. She's turning out of the path of the Merrimack. She's avoiding that ram, and as she turns, she keeps blasting away at the Southern Ironclad. That monitor's still in that fight. She's still in between the Merrimack and that Federal wooden ship to Minnesota. Once more, though, that Confederate Ironclad has been turned away from her objective. She's been turned away from the wooden sides of the Minnesota. And this time, the little old monitor seems determined to fight it out to the very finish. It's a terrific struggle, a battle of iron and steel. They're just blazing away. And the Merrimack is swinging around. Oh, she's slow and she's clumsy, but there's no question about it. She's turning. She seems to be heading back towards Norfolk. And there goes the monitor after her, just like a puppy chasing after a bill or a barking frantically. Yes, the engagement is all but over. The battle is over, and the northern fleet here in Hampton Roads is saved. The blockade of the south remains intact. There goes the Roanoke stand, and just listen to that band. It's playing the brand new Battle of the Republic, written only a month ago. And to be fair, neither the Merrimack nor the Federal Monitor was defeated, and neither one of them can really claim a clear victory. This great naval battle, which has just been fought so gallantly by the North and the South, is a draw. However, it's an unhappy day for the South, for as long as the Monitor stands here in Hampton Roads, Southern hopes of breaking the Federal blockade with the Merrimack are doomed, and the Monitor is going to stay here. This day, the door is in the monitor stops the Merrimack, and the Union fleet is saved. You have been listening to The Monitor and the Merrimack, another broadcast in the series, You Are There, produced and directed by Robert Louis Cheon. The Monitor and the Merrimack was written by Irv Tunick and Mr. Cheon. 
The cast included Anthony Kemble Cooper, Cliff Carpenter, Joseph Boland, Bill Quinn, Patsy Campbell, Court Benson, Jim Davidson, Bert Cowlin, and others. Next week. July 21st, 1881. The surrender of Sitting Bull. You are there. There you go. It's over. Two offerings from CBS. You are there. From uh, Both from uh, 1948. Uh, first, uh, Gettysburg. And then you heard the clash between the Monitor and the Merrimack. Cool stuff. Uh, I love I love finding this stuff. I love digging it up and uh, presenting that to you. So I hope you enjoy it as well. Uh, once again, Shot and Shield is brought to you by Dr. Harold's Hobby Supplies. A one-stop shop for tools, paint, glue, brushes, wargaming bases, display stands, model trees, static grass, dice, dice trays, and terrain materials, and even some miniatures. New items added every week. Dr. Harold's is a new dropship site, and it's growing. See the growth at drherald.myshopify.com. That's drherald.myshopify.com. Dr. Harold's Hobby Supplies, a proud sponsor of Shot and Shield. And lastly, you have been listening in Vienna, Austria, Bucharest, Romania, and New York, New York. This has been the Shot and Shield Supercast, a podcast dedicated to 19th century wargaming and history, a program meant to be heard while you're painting your miniatures and building your terrain. I have been your host, the Grand Duke Scott of the Duchy of Florida, and I'm out. He says you lost the king's colors. The fault was not mine, sir. Major Lennox must answer. Major Lennox answer with his life, as you should have done if you had any sense of honor. This has been a production of the Experience 13 Podcast Network. 13! Your electricity.